there really weren't very many vocal opponents of having an equity program, right? But the issue is like, is it this little program that's just a kiddie table where um, you could come and like get trained in some different things, but meanwhile we're issuing all of the licenses to the same kind of group. You've probably heard about the role that the war on drugs has played in perpetuating mass incarceration and the way that it's been deployed against communities of color. But what you might not have thought about is that the same industry that put black and brown people in jail is now going to make some well-positioned people a lot of money as the market for legal cannabis grows. So today we're going to talk about who gets to be one of those people. And specifically, I'm going to interview Shailene Title, who is a commissioner of the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission. That commission is an independent state agency charged with regulating the newly legal marijuana industry in Massachusetts. And her job in particular is to make sure that the legalization of cannabis in Massachusetts is equitable. So here's our conversation. So for non-Massachusetts listeners of this podcast, can you just give a quick overview of what the legal status of cannabis is in Massachusetts before we dive in? Sure. So Massachusetts made um, big changes to our marijuana laws the past three presidential elections. So 2008, Massachusetts decriminalized marijuana, which meant nobody would be arrested for possession. In 2012, it passed medical marijuana, which allows patients to buy marijuana in a store they have recommendations from their doctor. And then in 2016, Massachusetts legalized marijuana for everyone over 21 and allowed businesses in the form of cultivation, manufacturing, retail, and testing labs and other licenses that the commission has created. So the commission is the agency that is tasked with implementing that law, making sure that businesses open and are Client, and we've been in existence now for a year. And another housekeeping matter before we really dive in, can you just talk a little bit about terminology? Do you say marijuana? Do you say cannabis? What's your sort of vocabulary of choice and, and why? So I actually use both the terms, cannabis and marijuana. I like the term cannabis when it's more of a scientific context or where you're referring to the plant. I also respect the cultural term marijuana and what that represents. There's actually a, to the extent that your audience is wonky and interested in this sort of thing, there is a um, interesting dialogue about the roots of marijuana being used as a racist term when marijuana was first made illegal um, to try and conjure up the idea of immigrants and particularly Mexican immigrants who were using marijuana at the time. Now I believe um, that to refuse to use that term and to only call it cannabis is something of whitewashing. I respect the way that marijuana has been used in Mexican culture and now in American culture for so many years. So that is why I use both terms. So um, you talked a little bit about the Cannabis Control Commission, and I think Massachusetts is relatively unique in that our, the statute legalizing marijuana actually has equity provisions in it. So can you talk about, before we, well, can you talk about your role in the commission? Absolutely. So the commission has 
five members in five different areas of expertise, public health, public safety, business, government regulation, and then my seat, which is social justice. And what are some of the barriers to achieving social justice? Like, why do we need to write this into the law? What are some of the equity concerns when you're legalizing cannabis? Yeah, so um, just to back up, so this initiative was written in 2015, and initially, of course, it was written as a ballot question, so passed by the people, written by the people. And so I was on that committee. It was about 15 people, two people of color, myself and Chanel Lindsay, who is also an attorney, and she's now on our cannabis advisory board. And the two of us led the idea that other states were really showing that the marijuana industry had no diversity. Um, it was very much well-capitalized, um, well-resourced companies that did not, the laws did not provide a pathway for people in the illicit market to get involved in the industry. And we felt that, first of all, all industries should be diverse, but beyond that, because of the overwhelming evidence of the way that marijuana prohibition has been enforced, primarily against black and Latino communities, that we needed to make sure that was addressed in the law. And you know, when you look at other states, Colorado, for example, I worked on that initiative. It wasn't any mistake on their part, but once the data started coming out, and now it's several years later, we can see that there is a need to be more intentional and deliberate. So that is why in the ballot question we had language that required the regulating agency to form policies and procedures that would make sure that these disproportionately harmed communities were included. And then last summer the legislature rewrote the law and they added a lot of provisions that actually strengthen that language. So now there's an accountability measure. We have to make sure that we measure the licensees and the employees, make sure that these are diverse, that we're including farmers, veterans, people of color, women, and businesses of all sizes, and we have to report back to the legislature on that. And they did add that there would be a social justice seat on the commission. So I think it's fair to say that the people of Massachusetts and the government of Massachusetts have made it very clear that equity is a priority while creating this industry. So how do you get from equity is a priority and you have these sort of accountability mechanisms to sort of rubber hitting the road? What are the actual mechanisms by which uh, you or the commission are, are working on achieving equity? So the first step was to define what was meant by communities disproportionately harmed by prohibition. And I always joke that we wrote that language because I was expecting it would be handed off to some faceless regulator that I never imagined was going to be me. But that was the first thing we were tasked with. And so you can define community in different ways, right? You can define it as a place. You can define it as a community of people. And we thought it was both. So. The first thing we did was commission a study to look at the arrest rates across Massachusetts and find the geographic areas where the impact was disproportionate. So that identified 29 areas. Um, most of them are cities or towns, but four, Boston, Lowell, Worcester, and Springfield, are so big that to make it meaningful we had to subdivide it into neighborhoods. So we started by identifying those geographic areas and the people from those areas, which we defined as having residents there five of the past 10 years, 
to account for gentrification. They get certain benefits. Um, we also directly made a drug conviction a criteria for our equity program because we think that's the community too, right? No matter what your drug conviction was, it has had some impact on your life. Um, not just the direct criminal justice consequences, but you know your ability to get housing, your ability to get a job, what that passed on to future generations. So in that light, we also included if your spouse or if your parent has a drug conviction, you'll be eligible as well for the equity program. And then we thought about, um, so actually in our draft regulations, all of these criteria were race neutral. But we got a lot of feedback during the, um, during the public comment period that the evidence is so overwhelming about black and Latino communities in particular. So what were we going to do about that? So we ended up adding as a criterion for our economic empowerment priority program, which provides priority for businesses that get reviewed first, that um, out of three criteria that you have to meet out of six, one of them was being black and Latino origin. Um, and the rest have to do with hiring or ownership of people from those communities. Got it. So you have to, you have to meet three of six one of which could be that you're black or Latino, but it's not an absolute requirement. Is that, am I understanding correctly? That's exactly okay. right. So the idea there being you don't have to be um, black or Latino to qualify, but it's one factor. Okay. So you've mentioned a couple times the equity program and prioritizing applications. So how do you go from having people, you know, you've picked the people who you think need... I don't know, what's the right way to say it? A, a, like a, a leg up or... Yeah, like or, you know, a fair some, shot. Yeah, a fair shot. Yeah, yeah, that's a better. Leg up didn't feel right. Um, and then what happens from there? What is that actual shot? Right, um, that's definitely a question that we wrestle with. So the priority program is kind of its own thing. That was laid out in the law specifically that from April 2nd to April 15th ended up being April 2nd because that was a Sunday. That window, we allowed people to um, apply and show that they met the criteria of um, the, those six that I mentioned. And so there were 123 applicants who met that criteria. And that designation that they have of priority doesn't expire. So anytime that they apply now, they'll go right to the front of the line to be reviewed. So that's the Economic Empowerment Priority Program. Now, the equity program, we put a lot of thought into what benefits do we want to give the people from these communities because the law didn't specify that. We looked at different models from other cities, from other states, for other industries, Massachusetts being the first statewide equity program for cannabis. And we thought about quotas. Ohio has a 15% quota for their medical marijuana businesses. They, those go to people of color. Um, a quota didn't quite feel right for Massachusetts. It didn't feel like the way um, to implement the intent of the law. We looked at um, a model that Oakland has where equity applicants and general non-equity applicants are tied together and they only make it through the licensing process if both of them make it through as a way to um, require mentorship 
or incubation. Hmm. Um, our commission kind of felt like that wasn't the, um, we didn't want to force that, that type of relationship. And so we ended up with a program that is primarily made up of technical assistance. And it's wide-ranging, flexible technical assistance. So we made sure that we elicited comments from the direct communities we're trying to impact. We didn't want to be like up there at our meetings talking about them without any kind of input. So we made sure they were at the table. And what we heard was that they didn't want a one-size-fits-all program. So our equity program consists of four different tracks depending on what you want your role in the industry to be and what your background is. So there is an entrepreneur track for people who want to build their own business, um, directly marijuana business, that would be licensed by us. There is a entry or re-entry track for people who are just starting out or starting out for the first time in a while with a job, um, so basic skills there. A core track, which is for people who are seeking to be in management or executive levels at cannabis businesses. And then finally, the ancillary track, where if you have trade skills or professional skills already and you want to transfer those to the cannabis industry, how would you do that? Um, so taking a little bit of a step back, and can we talk about the cannabis business model and why? what is the actual mechanism by which people are being excluded from this sort of burgeoning industry. What is it about the business model or the industry that makes it so difficult for these historically disenfranchised or victimized communities to engage? So a lot of it is just general um, business barriers to entry, right? That would apply in any business. We did a survey of economic empowerment applicants to ask why most of them have not applied yet. And the initial challenges that they reported were finding capital, um, making it through the local approval process, and developing a business plan. So finding capital, of course, is difficult in any industry. Um, and people of color and women tend to get far less capital than their white male counterparts. But it's particularly difficult in the cannabis industry because you can't go to the bank and get a loan. And so because of that lack of banking, the businesses that are able to get capital and move ahead tend to be the ones that can get capital from family and friends. That's a huge barrier. There's also a legal barrier in other states, which I'm very proud to say we do not have in Massachusetts, which is that people with drug convictions, specifically marijuana convictions, are often specifically excluded from this industry, which just makes no sense at all. And I'm glad to say that trend is reversing. Can I go back to the capital question for a mm -hmm. second? Because I'm just thinking about like what a, a business would look like. It seems like it also, in addition to obviously having to access cash, is very difficult. It seems like a very capital intensive business, right? Because you sort of you need to be able to cultivate and you need a brick and mortar store and um, yeah, like, can you just talk about the capital intensity of the business? Yes, you're right. Absolutely. This is a very capital intensive business, particularly the cultivation and the testing labs and at times the manufacturing. There's a lot of expensive equipment involved. And then also this is an extremely regulated industry um, and it has to be, right, because um, people have a lot of concerns about it. They want to make sure that there's very tight security. They want to make sure that all of the inventory is 
tracked carefully to try and minimize diversion. And in order to meet all of that, it takes a lot of money. So um, what we've tried to do is make a wide variety of licenses, and some of those licenses require less capital. So we have micro-businesses that um, provide benefits for very small um, cultivation operations or manufacturing, or both under the same license, um, and they have a discount on their fees. Unfortunately, though, um, we've now approved 19 licenses at this point, and we haven't gotten any micro-business applications, so clearly there is a barrier there. Hmm. Do you have a just a hypothesis as to what's what the barrier is or what's going on, what's holding people back from applying for that license? Other than capital, yeah. um, I do think that the local approval process is very difficult. Um, we see that in the survey data, and I hear that anecdotally a lot from potential applicants. And by local approval, you mean like the towns themselves, or what do you mean by local approval? So every business in Massachusetts has to get... Um, State, a state license, but they also have to go through a local process that includes signing an agreement with the city or town that they're located in. And that can include payments to the municipality, um, and it also includes um, any decisions that the town or city and the business want to make together um, to make sure that they're addressing the local concerns. Yeah, so it's, I, I don't remember what news source I was just reading it on, but it sounds like it's starting to come out that these arrangements between the towns or municipalities and the companies are turning out to be very expensive. Uh, how do you feel about that, and do you think that there's a way to, to, to fix that problem? So I'll start with the good news. The good news is that the law directly addressed this. This was one of the ways that... Um, the explicit intent that small businesses and people from all backgrounds should be included in the industry, that this was addressed. And so along with this requirement that there be an agreement between the community and the business, they put limits on the payments that could be required. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is that um, many of these agreements are going beyond those limits. And so there is a question as to how that will be enforced. So in July, our commission received a letter from two of the key legislators who worked on the law, um, Representative Mark Husak and Senator Jalen. And the letter that they sent us said very clearly that the intent of the law was that um, our agency would be in charge of evaluating these agreements as part of all of the requirements that we check before we consider a business compliant and able to operate. Um, so I made that proposal. Um, and that proposal failed four to one. But the in limit... The, in the commission. That's right. You, you being the one. That's right. Okay. So that law and that limit still exist, though. So whether it's resolved in our commission or by the legislature or by the courts, eventually this issue will be resolved. But as I said in our public meeting, I do see this as the most significant decision that we've made thus far because we've heard from so many small businesses that they have been unable to navigate that process at the local level. And that's why they haven't applied at the state level, um, regardless of how accessible we've tried to make the state level program. Got it. And um, this sort of brings me back to the question that I interrupted you from answering earlier, which is that 
I would imagine that if part of this process is negotiating with a township, um, that relationships would matter, or just that that would be a place where discrimination would sort of rear its head. Absolutely. So I, I don't see any evidence of outright discrimination, mm -hmm. right? But having been um, in this industry for a really long time, um, I was at one point um, representing marijuana businesses as a lawyer. At another point, I owned a recruiting firm trying to get people in the business. So I have a lot of experience with this. It's exactly what you said. It's knowing the right people, and it's having that access where you know how to set up a meeting, you know how to negotiate an agreement, and it's these um, invisible types of um, privilege, I guess, where if you don't have that, you don't know how to navigate the system. And I think the proof that you see is the law clearly intended for us to provide priority to two groups, the existing medical dispensary and the economic empowerment applicants I described. And here, 19 licenses later, we have only granted licenses to the first group. Interesting. Are there other um, barriers to equity that we haven't talked about in the industry that you think are are relevant. So I feel like we've talked about capital, we've talked about regulation and sort of legal costs and sort of, I don't know how you, what we were just talking about, sort of, I don't know, sort of networking privilege mm -hmm. would be how I describe it. Have we right. missed anything? Right. There's, there's a lot. And I, I definitely <laughs> don't mean to put all of the blame yeah. on the, that local approval issue. I just think that happens to be a clear one that yeah. we could address. There's a lot that are more difficult to address. Certainly capital is one of them. Certainly, um, Networking privilege, that's a great term for it. It's also just the fact that um, there is still a stigma around these businesses, right? And there's a direct link, in my mind, from the stigma to the regulations to the cost that it takes to run a, one of these businesses. But I think the good news there is over time, um, as, the, the, um, as the business is open and you just kind of see them, the, the same way that medical marijuana has become an accepted part of society, I think the same thing will happen with adult use marijuana and that the costs will eventually become more like a typical business. Um, there's also the tax issue. Um, there's a part of the law 280E um, which affects the way that businesses can um, make deductions, which makes it a lot more difficult to run a business. There's also the banking relationships, right? If you don't know the right people, you can't navigate the, um, the, the ability to get a bank that can stop you from opening your, your business. So there's a lot of small things you can run into that add up. Do you think there's a first mover advantage for this sort of burgeoning industry? And if so, are you concerned about folks getting just completely left behind or, sh or shut out if there's continues to be a delay between sort of one bucket and another? That's a concern for me, yes. Um, I, I do think there is a first mover advantage, but also, I mean, this is a huge, huge population that uses marijuana. I mean, I think the last survey showed one out of five adults used it. And so the demand is huge. Um, I don't see this as, you know, if 20 businesses open, like suddenly the market is, is already exhausted. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. 
I'm curious if like this is me just sort of spitballing now it's not really even a formal question but um, if you look at like say the tobacco industry for example that's a highly concentrated industry and I know at one point in my former life I was a, a management consultant working at a tobacco company and mm. they were like thinking about okay what happens down the road when marijuana is legalized and, and I just worry about like sort of things shooting up very quickly into these highly concentrated businesses and um, a couple people making a lot of money off those acquisitions and then everyone else sort of with their hands up you know I don't know so there's a few ways that the law tries to address that. Um, one is, as I've mentioned, these mandates to make sure we include small businesses. And I, I try and make sure that the commission um, threads that into every decision that we make. There's also a license limit. So you can't hold more than three of each type of license Interesting. under the law. And what is a license? Like, so what, what does it give you the right to do? Um, so there's different types of licenses. So you can have cultivation license that allows you to grow. You can have a retail license that allows you to sell in a store. Um, you can have a testing license that allows you to have a testing lab that tests the marijuana and so on. And you can only have three of those? Three of each. Three of each. Okay, got it. So there's a limit of three of each types of license. So if you wanted to open three retail stores, for example, um, whether it's in the same town or different towns, you couldn't open a fourth. Got it. You couldn't own or control a fourth. I see. So um, that was one limit. Um, on the other side of that coin, there's no cap on the number of licenses statewide because I've seen that be a massive barrier in other states where you try and just um, make everybody compete against yeah. each other and it's sort of false um, and I think it, it brings out the worst in businesses right. so when we look at an application we just look at whether it meets the requirements or it doesn't there's no cap there the other thing that um, for a while I think is going to prevent that massive consolidation you might see in other industries is simply that it's still illegal federally um, at some point, that's going to change. I have on the dry erase board in my <laughs> office everyone's different predictions. <laughs> I think at that point, um, when you don't have you know banking problems anymore, for example, because of federal legalization, then there's going to be a very real risk, I think, of, of quick consolidation by, by big companies. Mm. Are there other models that you are looking to? I know this is sort of terra incognita, but... Um, what, yeah, are there other models that you're looking to? I'm completely flex flexible. I mean, I think all five of us um, are committed to equity and to making sure that we're watching the data as it comes in day by day, right? And if the equity program isn't working, um, we're going to talk about why. We're going to make sure that the other local and state and national governments that are watching our equity program, um, they know what works and what doesn't work. So I would say in terms of other models, a very interesting thing that the Commission has done has to do with social consumption and delivery. So back in December when we were doing our draft regulations, we talked about very low barrier to entry businesses, which they've had in California for decades, which are delivery services. So you don't need to have a brick and mortar, um, you just need to have a form of getting inventory, a form of transportation, and a way to meet the security requirements. And so delivery services were a way to um, make sure that people with fewer resources would be able to compete. 
We also allowed for social consumption licenses where um, it would be similar to a bar. Um, so we now have the situation in Massachusetts where people over 21 can consume marijuana and soon they will have a place to buy it. But if they live in an apartment or they live in public housing or say they're a parent, they don't want to keep it at home or they're visiting and staying in a hotel, all these different situations, they don't have a place to use it legally. So social consumption would offer that place where it's not happening on the streets or in the park or wherever. So um, we got some strong public feedback and support, but we also got some strong public feedback that um, people in the state and different government agencies didn't feel ready. And so we talked about delaying those licenses. And what we decided as a compromise was that we would delay the discussion of those licenses until this fall, so like this October, November. But once we issue them, they will go exclusively to those small businesses. So micro-businesses, equity applicants, um, and the model there is exclusivity right for for certain types of licenses I have not seen that in any other states but it seems to me like a way to address the issues we're having now where um, we're just not getting applications for those groups so apart from education are there other structural ways that you think that you can promote equity in the industry yes so um, I think that there is a role for all licensees to play. So um, the law requires us to make a positive impact on communities disproportionately impacted. And we interpreted that as something that not just our agency, but all of the businesses that we license should do. And so in addition to requiring a diversity plan, we require a positive impact plan where our licensees can be innovative and creative and show us their plan for how they will make a positive impact. So thus far we've seen things like um, incubators, accelerators, partnerships with community colleges, um, and I think there's um, a way to address that networking privilege question there because you know maybe you're in an accelerator and then the business introduces you to where they bank, for example. Um, and so I really wanted to make sure there was an opportunity for the businesses that wanted to contribute to do so in a way that allowed them to be creative. It's very interesting. Okay. So taking a step back, what has been the most surprising barrier in, in your time here or in doing this work more broadly in achieving equity in opening up this industry? This isn't so surprising, but I think the most um, profound challenge is going from where it's just lip service to where it's actually going to have an impact. Um, there really weren't very many vocal opponents of having an equity program, right? But the issue is like, is it this little program that's just a kiddie table where um, you could come and like get trained in some different things, but meanwhile we're issuing all of the licenses to the same kind of group. Um, that is the biggest challenge, and in itself, it has like smaller challenges, which are sometimes surprising. I definitely have found that this local approval issue um, was very surprising. I, I never thought that our when the law seems totally clear to me, when legislators wrote us a letter clarifying that there would be any question, you know, that we would be reviewing those agreements. Um, but other parts of it are not so surprising. Um, 
but this we're the first state to be doing this, right? We're the first state with an equity program and we're all prepared for the challenge. Okay, that's it. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to rate and review us on whatever platform you found this on. Thank you to Brooke Hopkins and Anna Wyke at the Criminal Justice Policy Program, to the folks at Poddington Bear who composed our theme music. And please remember you can contact us at voirdirepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.